Welcome and thank you for joining us in season three of the Religion Podcast, where a rabbi and a reverend walk into a podcast and talk real about religion. Joel Shalom. How about it? Rabbis Eric's. What's up, my name? Huh. I wish there were two of me sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> that is that should be my prayer for you today is that you can duplicate yourself. <laughs> Without people knowing, so that they could be really impressed at how I how I move around. <laughs> that I am both at Temple doing administrative work and on this podcast with you. Who is that superhero character in the Marvel or DC universe who can do that? Uh, well, Doctor Strange can't be in two places at once. It's funny that you uh, just mentioned the Marvel universe because I um, just watched uh, Avengers Endgame this week in five different sittings because it's a three-hour movie. But uh, I just finished that. That's a big investment. It, it is. And it is a really good movie. They all are, except maybe Captain America 2. It's so long ago I saw that I don't remember it. I, I definitely feel like I have enjoyed most of them. Um, some are most definitely better than others, both both as films and as action films. But mm -hmm. I really think Endgame as a film is solid. It has good writing. It doesn't feel like it's three hours. It moves. The characters are developed. It's got some stuff to it. But stuff that is probably not along the lines of what we're going to talk about today. Well, other than Iron Man is Jesus. I mean, I, that movie clarified that for us. Oh, did it? Did that for you? It's funny. I did not get that uh, metaphor. Or I wonder why. Would, would it be a metaphor? <laughs> I, I wonder why, too. <laughs> What do you want to talk about this week, Mr. Uh, pixelated Video? <laughs> well, mine is uh, homelessness, right? And what people of faith, especially clergy, what our responsibility is and wise ways to embody that responsibility to people who find themselves homeless. Um, I, we, I'm here in this small little corner of the eastern shore of Maryland where the population isn't very big, 20,000. And there is some homeless folk. Some of them are chronically homeless, as in they have been homeless for years. And maybe they have some mental um, disability issues. Maybe they have some addiction issues. Maybe they just hit a really hard spell and now they're stuck in a cycle of it. But what is our communal, governmental, and religious responsibility to those who find themselves either chronically homeless or emergency homeless? You know, he got sick, and so he lost his job, and then she had to take care of him, so she lost her job, and then they lost their house. And, and I'm watching um, different religious organizations, different social sector, nonprofit groups, different governmental agencies talk about it. Meanwhile, there's still a certain number of people who exist all around us without a, a place to sleep. And it's it's hard. Like I am I'm frustrated by the lack of uh, America's desire to solve homelessness. 
And um, I wonder what, I wonder how you look at it through a faith lens. Well, I was going to ask you a question that I have my own answer for, but, you know, it, it is, it's interesting because um, it's one of those topics that I think interfaith clergy talk about and deal with. And I wonder, and again, in some ways it's an obvious question, but I think it makes us think, like, what makes it a topic for religious leaders? So, Like, I know certainly Jesus, you know, I mean, I know you could quote me New Testament. I could quote, you know, from Moses and the Torah. But there is something universal about people who take religion seriously taking homelessness seriously. Mm-hmm. And for me, there is, like, I when the Torah um, declares, look, you were once the um, homeless. <laughs> you were once aliens moving through the land, and others showed you hospitality. Therefore, you will show hospitality to the aliens and the travelers and the abandoned and the homeless. That's when I think of the great command to the people of Israel, care of those who are wandering without a home seems to be an essential part of the identity of those once traveling people who now have the benefit of land and home, remember the travelers and the homeless. Jesus plays that up pretty big one day when somebody asks him, like, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, what, what is written in the Torah? And he goes, well, to love God and, and to love your neighbor. And those are plucked from the Hebrew scriptures. And, of course. And he says, good, sure. you're not far. And then the guy goes, yeah, but who's my neighbor? And he tells a story about a man who is homeless and stuck in a ditch, abandoned. And the guy, the Samaritan, carries that guy in the ditch to a hotel and puts him up and feeds him and bandages wounds. But other religious leaders had walked around that homeless guy in the ditch uh, for various reasons. They didn't want to... They didn't want to touch him. They thought he was a dead body. They didn't want to touch him. He was bleeding, and they didn't want to become unclean for their ceremonies. So Jesus's point to the man was, well, who was the neighbor? Well, the one who helped. And it was a Samarian, a Samaritan. Um, so I think the grand commandment of the people of Israel and the, the rabbi that I follow was, you're going to help these people. You're going to take care of them. You're going to sacrifice some of your time and your treasure to give them the basics. And and I'm on board with that. But what I find is the logistics of trying to assemble a government and a social sector and a religious community to actually do it, it, it just always comes across so much harder than it feels like it should be. Oh, sure. And we're not, you know, we're not here to kind of form a commission on homelessness. We're here to kind of, or at least, you know, it's your topic. I'm not, far <laughs> be it for me to tell you what you want to talk about. But but from why I think it's import, important from a religious context. And I, I also think, you know, if we take the idea seriously that uh, from Genesis, that each of us is creating God's image, that we want to help bring out the holiness in each person. Mm -hmm. um, I do think in America, 
and this is just me kind of um, a friend of mine has a bird walking. Have you ever heard that expression? Like we're bird walking. He uses it as like, I'm just talking off the cuff here. Like we're bird walking. I, I, I'll have to find <laughs> out where that comes from. But so, you know, I haven't thought a lot about this um, until you told me uh, in our pre-show that you were bringing this up. But, you know, in America, ingrained in us as children is this idea of the American dream and we can all achieve it if only we work hard. And so I think for a lot of people, and by the way, I have this bias that I fight like hell against because it's been ingrained in me, that I think we have a default bias that that, that people who are homeless, well, they must have done something wrong or they must not have worked hard enough or they must have been you know, bad at, you know, in relationships or in their job or, or their drug addicts or something that they deserve. And we aren't there because we have worked hard and we deserve it. And and we really have to deprogram that. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, I'm on the board of a local organization here called Family Promise, the name of which I will always say I don't like because it's, to me, it sounds like a far right wing organization <laughs> like Family Values. Um it used to be called the Interfaith Hospitality Network, which Joel, you and I served on the board at the same time yeah. uh, for a year or two, which was awesome. And, you know, I know you know this, but for our listeners, um, what we do, what the organization does is take people who are temporarily homeless due to um, a crisis in their lives, a sickness, a tragedy, what have you, provides temporary housing, um, daycare for kids. And counseling, job counseling, psychological counseling to help people kind of get back on their feet. And for me, there's almost nothing more religious than that because in um, – and without giving kind of a one-hour lecture on this, uh, <laughs> there, there was a Jewish a – Jew, too late. Uh, there was a Jewish scholar uh, named Maimonides. I may have brought him up before in our conversations that – he created what we call now the, the ladder of righteousness, and there are kind of eight rungs on that ladder. And each rung, so to speak, is better than the previous one, but it's better mm -hmm. to do one than none. Needless to say, or long story short, again too late, the eighth rung, the highest level of tzedakah, of righteousness that you can achieve, is to help someone become self-reliant. It's kind of like, don't give a man a fish, teach a man to fish. It's mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And so that is, for me, why homelessness is a religious issue. Yeah. And, and I'm stuck in that space, but also realizing that so when I was a pastor in Atlanta, I, I had a lot more exposure to a wide variety and a large number of homeless folk in various situations. Our church was less than half a mile from the interchange with the big perimeter around Atlanta 285. And where the road that our church was on and the perimeter crossed, there were four hotels at the four corners of that 285 intersection. And those hotels were, it was like Red Roof Inn and a Masters Inn and the Knights Inn. They were, they weren't Marriott's Hilton style. These were the um, I, my my stepfather used to call them trucker motels. Um, you know, the thirty nine ninety nine a night kind of places, and and there were families that lived there, and there were 
people who worked out of the motel rooms. Um, and we knew that. And so we saw that side of homelessness as well as other kinds of sides. And what I've watched now, and I guess I've, we're working on it here in this town with government, with other agencies, with our interfaith group, and, and I've just been trying to solidify my thoughts on it. There seems to be, from the conservative viewpoint, oh my gosh, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, what's wrong with you, get a job, the, the um, approach that if you're homeless, you must have done something wrong. And, and I know that's not true. That's, gosh, if you just ask them a question, you'll find out. Occasionally, there's like a, you know, a Carnegie Mellon graduate who's amazing. And, and they're just homeless because of what happened in their life. Um, and then you'll, from the left, though, I read a book called Toxic Charity. And it's about the way people on the left do great, great harm by doing charity in a way that creates so much dependency and codependency that it becomes addictive and toxic to the very person you're trying to help. And I'm watching the that tension between the those who are t- too far to the right, who don't respect the predicament that put a person into homelessness, and I'm watching people too far to the left who are putting them up in an $80 a night motel. Um, and if you do the math on that, so if you're in an $80 motel for 30 nights, that's $2,400 a month. Oh my gosh, with $2,400 a month, we could house and feed you and your whole family for two months. So stop wasting money at hotels. Uh, and I'm I'm frustrated you know, that the the problem of homelessness is such a high priority for those of us who call ourselves religious, but it's we're stuck between the tensions of the so, of the right and left. So, uh, yeah, Joel, I, I think uh, it's it's a huge issue, and um, on on a practical level, what 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 is your community, your interfaith community, doing, and what made you think about it specifically for this week? Well, I'm. I'm part of what's around here called CVMA, Chester Valley Ministers Association, and we've decided to try to open a 12-month homeless shelter under the nonprofit CVMA. We're calling it Good Neighbor House. And the idea is it's a really low-barrier entry shelter, so it doesn't really matter why you're homeless. Come on in. We're going to help you. Um, We're going to try not to separate families. So if you come in as a, a single or a couple or a single parent with kids, or a whole a family with kids, fine, come on in, all of you, um, as you are. We're going to give you a private space to sleep and keep your belongings that you can lock and protect, and you're going to share um, dining, living, kitchen spaces. Um, and we're looking for a house or some kind of building we can renovate to provide this. And then we're going to bring all the social services you need to get relaunched to you at that house. Um, and it's that's our goal. Um, and I'm finding that other people who really care about homelessness are worried that if we do this well, we're going to attract more homeless to the territory, <laughs> you know? Um, like if we have a really good homeless shelter, it'll just be a magnet for homeless people. Uh, to which my response is, well, look at it this way. If a homeless person needs a bed and we have a bed and they come here for that bed, that's good, right? Because they're not homeless anymore. 
They now have a home. I'm not sure what the problem might be. Um, And then from the left, I'm getting, oh my gosh, you're taking too long. We're just going to put them up in hotels um, Mm. at 80 bucks a night, right? Where there's no assistance to help them relaunch. There's no sense of community. There's... No. Right, it's kind of like the let's write a check yeah. solution. Well, and and the folks who are doing that are writing a check, yes. They're also developing some sense of relationship with those folk who are tr- needing a place to sleep tonight. And we don't have a place yet. The Good Neighbor House doesn't exist. It's a dream. But, it, right. uh, but I'm watching those two to the far right or far left both frustrated with trying to really provide – a long-term housing solution for those who accidentally find themselves homeless. And I'm watching both of the extremes be so adamant in their either judgment or their solution that they're they're not helping. <laughs> and I, I just keep wondering, why can't we help? <laughs> Instead of competing with one another, fighting for the right way to do it, my way's right, your way's stupid, right? There's got to be a smarter way. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, th- this is the this is the challenge of ideals meeting practicality, right? As an um, engineer who's a pastor, the engineer, <laughs> right? The engineer is practical. Uh, there, there is no design that is worthy of putting my name on it if it doesn't solve the problem. And as a pastor, I'm an idealist, right? It has absolutely. to look like the kingdom of God. Whatever we design and launch, dadgummit, it should look more like the kingdom of God than what we do today. And I'm just realizing so much about America really doesn't care about the chronic homeless, the accidentally homeless, the temporarily homeless. So much of the way that we do our society is designed for those who are mostly capable. They can earn an income. They can spend that income. They can pay their taxes. It's really not designed to take care of the widows and the orphans and the aliens. It's designed to take care of those who take care of themselves and to trade things between them. Meanwhile, those who don't have something, quote, of value to put to the system, well, they roll off and they're neglected and overlooked and forgotten. And it's, I'm very frustrated by it as a a brokenhearted clergy person. Yeah, <laughs> understandably. But you ha- you almost would have to be frustrated by it to to do so. You know, it's kind of like the the um, not social organizing, community organizing mantra of you have to be angry to to affect change. Mm-hmm. That um, and I'm also thinking too. I, I mean, I, I don't mean this to be a pep talk for you, but kind of for <laughs> all of us is is um, you know you're not. Doing this within your own community or my own community would be hard enough. You're doing it in an interfaith community where people's, you know, when you talk about the community of God, for example, like different denominations are going to have varying degrees of belief on what that even is. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking that if we ever get this thing launched, things will settle down. But when it's theoretical, people don't trust it. But when it's functional, they will go, oh. You know, so I have a sense of pressure on myself to accelerate. Um, But we're trying to launch something from scratch, design something from scratch. And 
other places have done this and they've made it and they pulled it off, but I'm just realizing how hard this is going to be. And I'm, I'm a little scared of it and frustrated by it. Yeah. And it's a big deal. It's a totally big deal. Well, what's on your mind today? So a little bit of context is um, there was a very well-known Jewish musician in more traditional circles. Uh, His name was Shlomo Karabach. He passed away uh, either – I mean in our lifetimes he passed away. And to use kind of a modern term, he was a – an alleged sexual predator. And um, I mean, I, I absolutely believe that he was. I'm not saying alleged in the sense of, you know, like I don't believe it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, multiple women have come forth. And his daughter is also a songwriter that performed with him and took a lot of inspiration from him. And, and she's said and written a lot of things about her conflicting attitude toward her father, understandably, of course. I've seen her perform several times. She's amazing. Um, anyway, there is an ongoing debate in certainly in liberal circles, liberal Jewish circles. I, I don't mean, you know, Democrat, Republican, uh-huh. about whether or not one should play his music or sing his music. And, you know, it kind of goes along the lines of, you know, do you watch movies with Mel Gibson, which incidentally, uh, not this coming Saturday, but next Saturday, I have a I have a um, series that I'm calling Real Havdalah, R-E-E-L. And Havdalah is the service that separates Shabbat from the rest of the week. Uh-huh. And I, what I'm doing at each of these sessions is taking a movie and kind of teasing out Jewish themes as they are referenced or reflected in the movie. And so the next movie we're doing is the movie Signs, hmm. the science fiction movie Signs, wow. which stars Mel Gibson. <laughs> anyway, you know, watching Woody Allen movies, um, you know, there's this whole debate now. And this is what kind of th- this thing about um, Karl Bach is not new. Um, but I think the recent discussion about Spotify and Joe Rogan has has brought this to light again. And in my circles, there's a lot of talk on social media about, you know, do your congregation use Shlomo Karbach music? Why? Why not? And what's interesting to me or what makes it trickier for me, that conversation versus the, you know, Woody Allen conversation is that if I were to sing a tune Oh, and let me also say the the music of Shlomo Karabach was is known for being kind of very. When I use the word friendly, I mean it's easy to sing. It's congregational singing. Mm-hmm. It's it's not anything complex that you have to learn and read music for. So it's very inviting in that way, and also very. Um, a lot of it is very upbeat and kind of to use the word spiritual in a, in a way that I hope uh, is meaningful to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and people can, you know, Google, YouTube. I mean, his music is all over. Um, what I was going to say before I interrupted myself is that when we when I or a soloist sings a song from him, very few people in the congregation will know, oh, that's a Karl Bach melody. Uh-huh. As opposed to, you know, I show a Woody Allen movie and everyone knows that that's Woody <laughs> Allen, right? <laughs> right. Um, 
And it also brings up, um, I don't know if you're going to edit it out or not, but uh, in our pre-show, I mentioned that I uh, just finished watching Avengers Endgame a few a few days ago for the second time. <laughs> and there's this line in it about how um, one of the characters forgives another because they don't define themselves. They don't define other people by their worst deeds. Hmm. And, and kind of, I think that plays into this. And it's, uh, you know, we talked about cancel culture in, in one of our uh, seasons. And it, you know, it, it, it's about that too. And, you know, I'm not looking for an answer. I really struggle with it. Um, I would say, you know, cause I, I think it begs the question if I don't say kind of what we do do. Um, um, we, you know, we, we don't sing a lot of Carl Bach tunes, but I'm also not a cantor. Um, and I love, I do love to sing and I love to sing with guitar. And there are some melodies that occasionally I do that all are Shlomo Karlbach. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I am torn about it. And I don't know if, you know, do you have any kind of parallel in your experience that yeah. you could bring to this or just share your thoughts or? Well, as a parallel, yes, there are hymns in our current hymnal that are, um, not ancient. So they're, you know, from the, 20th century, and they were the edge of uh, more enjoyable, positive, semi-modern-ish, but still traditional-feeling songs, so that people who liked old hymns and people who wanted new, relevant music, they were in sync on that. And one of the writers, authors, musicians of some of those hymns turned out to be a have some sexual indiscretions in his history as well and there was a big push in fema the the presbyterian musicians association to not sing his songs anymore and and we've had that debate in worship planning meetings like what do y'all think and it's typically split like oh my gosh we can't sing his stuff it was what he did was terrible and others is like, yeah, but can we separate the art from the artist here? Like his art, despite how bad he was, uh, his art still can speak beauty and truth to somebody. And can we let his art be beautiful despite the artist's ugliness behind it? Um, so we do have a parallel. Um, and I've got some other thoughts, but what is your struggle and what are, where are you at this point in, in that well, in some ways, it is it's um, it's not as difficult because the melodies that I typically lead w- aren't his melodies. Just you know, anyway, they're not in my kind of wheelhouse of what I know and things like that. Um, but but occasionally I have, and I, you know, one of the arguments that I find um, relevant is, you know, it's entirely possible for someone at a worship service to be, to be, you know, a victim. You know, I don't think it's probable. I don't think it's likely. I mean, you know, we're a small congregation in Athens, Georgia, but, but it's certain, but it's possible. And so to think about, Kind of, or to have the empathy of what would that feel like for someone sitting in the congregation? It would be like if I gave a sermon about not exactly the same metaphor, but the same kind of idea. If I gave a, a sermon lauding Woody Allen and one of Woody Allen's victims was sitting in the, in the sanctuary, right? Like that, that 
is not good. And that's definitely not something I want to do. Um, hmm. So we had a, in the Christian tradition, there was just one church, right? It wasn't called the Catholic church. It was just the church. And it was that way for 1500 years. Um, in the Reformation, there was a big split off from the mother church and other people's ways of doing church. And there was a massive argument across the Christian tradition whether or not baptisms still counted if performed by the wrong Ah. priest or pastor. Um, And some people said, no, it doesn't count. It was performed by a bad preacher, a bad pastor whose theology didn't match what it should. And other people said, yes, the baptism is going to count. We disagree with them. We think they were wrong the way that they said or did or practiced, but it still counts. Um, So let's fast forward that. Um, There were Catholic priests who did great harm to young boys and girls, and that that has been exposed. Is every communion that that priest who hurt young boys presided at, is that erased, null and void? Are the baptisms that that priest presided at null and void? Um, are if, if they learned any truth about themselves or God from any sermon that that, that pedophile priest ever preached, does that erase the truth that leaked out of that pedophile priest, maybe accidentally, at some sermon. I I think you can still put consequences on the individuals for the mistakes that they made, and you can hold them accountable, accountable to communal justice standards. But if they happen to put something good, something beautiful into the world, you can hold that up and continue to use it as long as you are also remembering the harm and speaking the harm and uh, holding accountable the ones who did the harm behind the art. Um, And I don't know why we get so wrapped up in like, well, I can't love the beauty of the art because of the shadows of the artist. Um, I, I think you can. And that's what I ask God to do with me all the time. In my darker, sinful corners, please let the beautiful have more power in the world than the dark. Please yes. please grace yes. me and forgive me for my sinful nature and lead me to be more gracious and more generous in my holy nature. Um, but I, I depend on that forgiveness for my, my darkness. And I hope I'm not judged only by my darkness. I hope I am forgiven by God. Right. So just playing both sides of that, the difference with someone like you or me, God willing, is that neither of us are going to do something so egregiously awful. What's the line? Right. Well, that I think that's the that's that's the question. I mean, okay, so it maybe it's pedophilia or is, is it, what if it's adultery? I mean, is adultery the line? I well, th- what's I I think it's different for Different people, and possibly on, <laughs> in different times of their lives. I mean, people are theologically, you know, people, it's not different for different people. 
Oh, no, theologically it's not, but just practically it is because you're dealing with emotions and irrationality. But as clergy, we're not allowed. Yeah, but we're not allowed to embody. We're not encouraged to embody what humanity hopes is the difference. We are encouraged to embody and teach that, sorry, people, (laughs) the line is not relevant based off of how you think or feel regarding this. If there's a line, it's a God line. And we can debate where it is. Oh, I don't. That's interesting. I don't know that I agree with that. I'd have to think about that more. Can God take a broken, sinful human being and do godly, holy, beautiful things? Oh, sure. That's up to God. I have no problem saying that. But, or not but, and it's just like in a previous episode, you know, you and I kind of talked about accountability, how like, yeah, I could forgive you, but I still don't want to interact with you or be friends with you or I don't trust you anymore. We, it's up to us to decide how we want to interact with people that have done wrong. And wrong, of course, is a vast um, spectrum, right? Is there anything wrong than more wrong than murder? Let's say we want to play along this wrong spectrum for a minute, which I don't, right? For me, there's holy and there's sin. And there's not levels of sin. All it, In the New Testament world, we say all have fallen short of the glory of God. So is there, if we're going to play there on a sin spectrum, murder is the worst, right? Are you going to throw out all of the Torah because Moses was a murderer? No, but that's what makes this topic, I think, fascinating and difficult. I think it makes I mean, it ridiculously same, way, easy same, for you as a rabbi. The same can be said for all of our, not maybe not all, but most of our patriarchs and matriarchs. I mean, Abraham lied to save his own skin. J, <laughs> yeah. J, you know, uh, Isaac tells his dad that he's his brother so we can get a blessing. I mean, yeah. like, we can go on and on, right? Tamar and Ruth and... <laughs> Right. Woo. Some of the stuff they had to do. But I also think this is a product, too, of the time. This, by this, I mean this conversation is a product of the time we're living in of Me Too and accountability and, for lack of a better expression, cancel culture. And that that's just the reality of where a lot of people are at. And that's what I mean when I'm saying it's not about God, because you could say it's about God, but if people can't handle it, or if some people can't handle it or say, well, I won't, I'll use my, you know, the example of Karbach, I won't go to a shul, a synagogue where Karbach is sung, which are, which is the reality for a lot of mostly younger, mostly liberal, mostly, um, and this word is often used derogatorily, and I do not mean it so, but woke people, people who kind of are trying to do the right thing, um, that's where a lot of them are at. And I, I feel like I have to at least know that. doesn't mean I have to abide by that, or, but I, I certainly need to be aware of it. You could be aware of it. Like you and I have to be aware of where our people, what they think is true what they think is right and holy. Now, the fact that there were generations of zero accountability for sexual predators who made movies or songs or art, I'm glad we have a moment here where we are turning the screws and looking for communal accountability against those. We are saying, believe the victims and hold the perpetrators accountable. That's, I think that's, 
fine. What it doesn't do is erase anything good or true that came out of the art or the live product that happened while somebody was committing a crime or after they committed a crime. I mean, this goes to, can somebody still listen to Michael Jackson <laughs> records? Absolutely. Right? By the way, absolutely. Yeah. But, and by the way, I do listen to Michael Jackson occasionally. Of course. I mean, I'm not, you know. <laughs> yeah. Of course. It, you have to. But it's that same thing. Like, if you're going to say, okay, we can't sing his songs, then you can't read Exodus. Right? <laughs> if you're not going to sing that his songs, you can't read Exodus. really... That's a great line. That is a great line. I don't disagree with you. Yeah. So it's, and you have to figure out where, what is the point, right? What is the point? The point is speak the truth and let there be a communal boundary as to how we agree we will treat one another. And when somebody goes out of bounds, that person will be held accountable. So let me, but the good that they do into the community or did into the community or the gifts they gave to the community or left with the community, we are going to continue using them for good despite the bad. So let me say one other thing, and then we, we can um, put, put a coda on this because, of course, <laughs> there's, no, you know, there's no answer. The, so I, I think there's there's definitely something to to the, to what you said. Like you know, if you if you if you're not willing to listen to Michael Jackson songs because of what he did, you know, you you shouldn't read Exodus either. Or take, I, and I get that. I, I mean, there's a big gasp, uh, uh, chasm there uh, that might seem uh, extreme, but but there there's definitely something there. But there is a big difference in that nobody knows Moses. Nobody nobody knows Abraham. I mean, we know what we read about them. Whereas when we talk about a um a Woody Allen or a, what what was his name from the 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 producer I'm blanking. Harvey Weinstein. The movie producer. Yes. Or Harvey Weinstein or Shlomo Karabach. Yeah. I mean, I don't know any of them personally, but as a community we know them. Like we could put a face to it and a voice and There is a there's a different resonance there. As a rabbi, I think you want your people to feel more connected to Moses than they feel to Michael Jackson. And if they don't, right? And if they don't, something's something's missing. Like, but it's but it's more of a. I mean, it it is absolutely a spiritual connection, but it's not. It's kind of like, and I, I'm I'm kind of way maybe way off topic here, but it's kind of like you know, did Shakespeare write Shakespeare's plays? It's not about Moses, the actual person that actually lived. It's about what's embodied in Moses. Whereas with these individuals, it is about that actual person that lived during a specific time period and died. Well, they're also alive, but. Or except for Karbach. Um Michael Jackson and <laughs> and Michael Jackson, <laughs> correct. Uh, for me, I mean, it's for me, I can't do the spiritual or, or ancient relation versus the contemporary flesh and blood blood relation because um, for me, Moses is family. 
and Michael Jackson isn't, right? So for me, Moses is ancestor, and Michael Jackson is, you know, interesting cousin. Uh, we're we're probably related in the grand human family in one way or another, but Moses is ancestor, and what's in Moses is in me. It flows down into me somehow through all those other broken people. And the lesson there is we are going to take the gift God has given us to be human, and we are going to misuse it, sometimes to our own harm, sometimes to the harm of others. And the goal is that we do more good than bad in the world and that we trust God to repair the bad we do. So I struggle when somebody starts trying to erase slash cancel a modern celebrity uh, or person from their life. Well, would you would you erase your dad if you found out he was in a car accident? Would would you erase your mom if she accidentally bumped a person on their ten speed bike in Athens? God forbid. God forbid. God forbid. Well, no, but what's the I mean, difference? That's a little bit of a- they're of the they're of the grand family of God, and we know that all the good that mom or dad did that it's not erased in that moment right, where they did something are, stupid. But both of those are accidental. Well, okay, I mean, th- so are, one of them had three glasses of wine before they did it. Still different. All no. By the way, and not different because they're my not different because they're love beloved family. <laughs> Different because I would forget because I think there is a dip because that is a different kind of sin, which goes back, by the way. And and maybe this is for another time, but there's absolutely a spectrum of sin for me. Because for me, like, look, not keeping kosher is violating a commandment. Heck, uh, wearing uh, woolen cotton on your body at the same time is violating a commandment. That's going to ring very differently to me and my community than, you know, murder or lying or adultery, right? Like, it just. But you haven't crafted a, a spectrum of sin there. What you've said is wearing different clothing isn't a sin. Somebody used to think it was. It's not. Oh. Somebody used to think being gay was a sin. It's not. So you haven't well, moved uh, it the, on the spectrum. You've removed it from the list. It's certainly against Jewish law. Well, there's a difference between Jewish law and sin. Of course there. Oh, of course there is. It's one of my favorite adult ed topics. Absolutely. But <laughs> um, so, well, so okay, you're not I, I debating the spectrum issue. You're just debating what's on the list. No, I think I am debating the spectrum issue. I just gave bad examples. <laughs> <laughs> well, for me, let, let, I can easily appreciate the beauty of good art despite the sin of the artist. And if I can't, yeah, I, mean, I have nobody around me who's good I can allow in the world because I know something bad about everybody in my life. I know some yeah. way that they've hurt others. I know some way that they've lied. I know some way that they've been betrayed. And and once you know that about somebody, that is the space for grace. And are we willing to give Woody Allen grace? Are we willing to give a Jewish musician grace, even for well, something that heinous let me just, and, and to lift up their beauty? Let me say one more thing. And then I, you know, l- l- let's, uh, l- let's, I- I'd suggest put a good, let's put a pin on this and, uh, 
get some feedback from listeners and whatnot. And because uh, we, we could talk about this all day and we, we still might. <laughs> you picked a much better topic. Um, yeah. You can give someone gr- like like not watching his movies or singing the person's songs or whatever. I would I, is not the same as not give you know, as not giving them grace. I think it's a valid choice. Well, sure, but it, I, but it doesn't thing, mean, okay, if you too, want to choose to not watch the movie, to not consume the product, right, to not sing the song and give them copyright loyalties or whatever, okay, just don't state that choice as the only right way to acknowledge uh, the I beauty see. of okay, the that, art, right? Because what you're trying to differentiate is what is our communal boundary on the artist who screwed up? Did we enforce that communal boundary or not? Yes or no? Good. Now, the art that came from that artist, what is our community regulation on using that? And it should be, does it do good in the world, regardless of who's behind it? Is it something we can sing and enjoy that shows light? And there has to be a differentiation. So it's for me, it has to do, this is where Jesus would get the angriest. Um, and it wasn't with people think Jesus was angry with Jews. Jesus was a Jew, people. So he was not angry with Jews. He was angry with religious leaders who felt it their right to be judgmental on how other people embody the communal standards. And they would go through, no, you can't bring that dove in. It's not clean enough. Well, she's poor. She can't afford a pure white dove. Well, God doesn't receive her offering unless it's pure and white. And then Jesus would say something like, you don't know God very well. And for, mm. and for me, I, the way I look at somebody who judges the art and the artist equally, they have, mis, they have misjudged the power of grace and, and beauty through brokenness. So, Joel, because this is was uh, my topic, I'm gonna have I'm gonna say the last thing. I love it. <laughs> um, so, first of all, you know, I mean, I, I I know we're going back and forth right now, but I, you know, I'm not clear on this. I could argue both sides very easily. I was kind of arguing just because that that's what makes an interesting conversation. I I totally. You know, I, I happen to like Michael Jackson's music. I've always <laughs> liked Michael Jackson's music. Um, I was never a huge fan of Woody Allen, Allen films, but like, for example, Crimes and Misdemeanors is, you know, I, which I have not seen, is people use that all the time to talk about theology and reward and punishment. I am going to watch that movie someday. Mm-hmm. The debate for me, and again, I'm getting the last word, the debate for me is not so much what I will do, it's what I, as a leader, will do in in the presence of my community. And, you know, and in picking the movie Signs for next week, I had to think long and hard about it. Mm-hmm. Now, I, people can choose to watch the movie, not choose to watch the movie, and <laughs> attend my program regardless. It's mm-hmm. not like I'm showing the movie at the program. Uh-huh. That might be a little bit of a cop-out, but <laughs> – you should you should come come next Saturday on Zoom and uh, you, um anyway <laughs> good conversation super fun you're the man you're the man Ata Aish <laughs> <laughs> all right everyone stay good stay safe go watch. 
Go listen to good music and, and watch good movies. <laughs> and keep it real. Amen to that. Thank you for joining us on the Real Religion Podcast today, where a rabbi and a reverend walk into a podcast and talk real about religion. I'm Reverend Joel Talbert, and on behalf of Rabbi Eric Linder and all the Real Religion fans out there, we thank you for being with us today and invite you to send us any feedback or suggestions or topic ideas to realreligionpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, keep it real.